Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Monday, March 7th, 2022. I'm John Potwartz, the editor of Commentary, and you have just a month, a day shy of a month, to sign up for our live podcast event in Palm Beach, Florida on April 6th. Uh, late in the afternoon, we will be doing this podcast live in front of an audience, and you can be in that audience and commune with other commentary listeners and the commentary family uh, in Palm Beach uh, on April 6th. So go to commentary.org slash live podcast for more details. That's commentary.org slash live podcast podcast. Abe will be there. Noel will be there. Christine will be there. Dan Senor will join us and maybe some others. So that will be the Commentary Magazine live podcast in Palm Beach on April 6th, commentary.org slash live podcast. And they'll be there then. They're here today. Executive Editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Senior Writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And Associate Editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. Um, Fox News is out with a poll. Uh, that says that 80%, it's either 74% or 80%, I just lost the link, of Americans support the imposition of a no-fly zone in Ukraine. Now, did they know what a no-fly zone is? Maybe not. The thing about a no-fly zone is that when you mention it, it sounds like it's less than war, but more than nothing. So maybe that's what they're saying. They want less than war, but more than nothing. Okay, I think it's 74% want a no-fly zone, 80% want tougher sanctions. Uh, public opinion is uh, ahead of the political consensus. It's Reuters Ipsos, by the way, not Fox. I'm sorry, I, I read it. I'm sorry, it's Reuters Ipsos poll, and I read it on Fox, so it's my fault there. Um, public opinion is racing ahead of the kind of political consensus. I think the presumption... Uh, of political leaders is that Americans are loath to get too involved or certainly to get militarily involved. The question is, is that right? Maybe that presumption is incorrect and is based on a false understanding of the American people and their reaction to what is going on on their TV screens and on their uh, computers. You mean the, the the presumption that um, Americans are loath to get involved is, is yeah that Americans yeah. are you know they've had enough they've had enough of uh, forever wars and they don't want to fight and what what about our problems here and Biden's absolute assertion every time he has talked about this to say I'm just making clear we're not going to get involved militarily we are not going to get involved militarily we want to help them but we're not going to get involved militarily and it seems like the allergy to military involvement may be something that is more uh, pronounced in the uh, in the American elites, both the Democratic elites and the kind of uh, Trumpist elites of the Republican Party uh, than it is in the body politic in general. Look, I think there's an pushback? and yeah, I think there's not a very well considered understanding <clears throat> among a particularly emotional set of people who are reacting to this emotionally, frankly, both in Ukraine and in the United States, because I don't necessarily know whether or not the public understands the implications of direct military involvement in a campaign, an active campaign operated by uh, Moscow over the skies of Ukraine. They would be pretty grave, nor am I entirely sure that Ukrainians actually want that. I and mean, these are the killing fields of Europe and to transform their country into a battlefield against uh, NATO forces wouldn't be in Ukraine's interests either. Um, what I suspect is that the Zelensky uh, government, which is lobbying the West for everything and anything, not just hardware, but also in no-fly zone, would settle for hardware because the no-fly zone isn't feasible or viable. Um, <laughs> so, you know, they're asking for everything and we'll get 50% of what they're asking for. That's, to me, a negotiating tactic. Um, I agree with you that the Moscow, Moscow's uh, behavior has snapped the West in particular, um, to a lesser extent, the United States, but the West certainly out of its post-Iraq syndrome. Um, there's just nothing we can do to satisfy those passions. Well, there's also the fact that uh, e trying to delineate these lines is going to be uh, increasingly 
useless anyway, because everything we're doing, Putin is now saying this is an act of war. So even the slight signal over the weekend, the Biden administration has given that we're going to start finding a way to get to get the military hardware jets, things, things that the Ukrainians can use to fight back through Poland to them to help them. He says this is an act of war. You know, we've we've talked about John. You've mentioned before that you know it's an act of war. Some of the financial uh, repercussions and sanctions that are going on. So Putin will see anything as an act of war. But I was I, I do agree with Noah that there's a long term strategic interest in not responding emotionally to this and saying if we don't agree to a no fly zone, we must hate the Ukrainians and hate freedom. Because if you look at, again, the history of the Cold War shows that much of what long term strategy yielded that was good for the West was not reacting very quickly and not, you know, when when invasions happen, not immediately arming up and marching in that we didn't do that over and over. We didn't do that. And similar criticisms are raised for the lack of of action then. But long term, it was a there, there was a strategy that involved not escalating with a with a fellow nuclear power. Okay. Briefly, just to clarify what the Kremlin has said, because it's important to say to state exactly what they're saying verbatim is that airfields anywhere that supply uh, Ukrainian uh, forces or, or support Ukrainian interests will be considered co-belligerents. Didn't say anything about moving armor across the border on land via train, which is what we okay, but, are doing. But, but they can say whatever they want and they're a nuclear power and therefore we're afraid of them starting a nuclear war. We are also a nuclear power. Britain is also a nuclear power. France is also a nuclear power. <laughs> that goes both ways. They he cannot just threaten our freedom of action. He has gone into a he has gone into a neighboring country as an invasion. We are lined up against him. We have voted against him in the UN. We have said the invasion is unjust and the idea that he can threaten us by saying that we're co-belligerents for supplying arms. At some point, uh, this goes both ways. And that's the whole thing about the perception versus reality of the trouble with engaging with a nuclear power. He is willing to play brinksmanship and uh, or or he is willing verbally to threaten. But um, we're more powerful than he is. We're a stronger country than he is. We have a larger military than he is, and we have greater capability to move materiel across the planet than anybody else does. And at some point he can't just say, you can't go in because I'll, I'll, I'll hit you with a, with a nuclear weapon or we'll get engaged, you know, in common terms. So we're not going to fly planes supposedly, let's say we're not going to have a no fly zone, but the idea that he has the right to say, or what, whatever, there's no rights here, but that he can, he can uh, intimidate us by saying that any move that we make, you know, to give the Ukrainians planes or some, or, you know, fly things up in the, he's establishing a no fly zone under those circumstances. And we simply cannot allow ourselves to be controlled and blackmailed in this way. I mean, the nuclear deterrent goes both ways. And I understand that he thinks that it doesn't. I understand that he thinks that we, our behavior in Afghanistan is an indication that we are a paper tiger, that we have no stick to itiveness, that we're not going to do what is necessary, and that he's willing to do what is necessary, and that we are uniquely susceptible to the kind of threats that he is going to issue. But this is why American public opinion and European public opinion are so important. We can say till the cows come home that people don't understand what a no-fly zone is. Right. They don't. They don't really understand that it's effectively a form of um, uh, it's getting involved in the air in a way that is not. That's it's not, not hard to articulate war, why it's not. If you're, you're in the air, you have to take out any air defense, mobile anti-air batteries because you want to be in the air. The yeah, very I first thing you do but is taking take them out, out doesn't mean. Right. I understand. That's not that's what I'm saying is. You're saying that the American people don't understand what's involved here. But and that not may necessarily be that's pretty condescending. It's possible. I know. But I mean, you did say that you said they're reacting emotionally, not not serious. And yeah, you know, issue can't do is it tough like this. Yeah, because then you have to bias the question by saying, well, right. if it means war, you know, that sort of thing. Right. But my point is that the American people are open to the idea that we should do more and doing more is more sanctions and doing more is more militarily may not be that we will have tanks facing their tanks and men on the ground with bayonets facing men on the ground with bayonets and all of that. But it does mean that this presumption among, again, the American educated elite that America, that the American people have now become inherently pacifist and do not want to engage militarily when they are watching one country 
with absolutely no right or justification that is coherent to anybody but the but the radical intellectuals and the dominant political figures in this one country that have any explanation for why it's okay for them to be going into Ukraine and swallowing it up, that that we can't just stand by and do nothing. That, that's what I'm saying. The ordinarily, uh, you know, the public is a bit of a lagging indicator. They may here be a leading indicator. And and I've said I said this last week, and I'm not even here saying it because I want it because I am I am as nervous about that, maybe less nervous than Noah, more nervous than Abe, let's say. But uh, the idea that a no-fly zone is unthinkable is no longer true. And if 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 things get, re- again, if things get really bad in Kiev, if he really does start leveling Kiev, the, the American and world public opinion is going to go from Putin is terrible to why are we just standing around here doing nothing? We cannot sit idly by and watch this happen. It's not going to be sufficient. And Biden will be pushed. Biden will my be pushed. Concern, my concern with the, the public reacting emotionally here is not so much that um, we will therefore kind of uh, stumble enthusiastically into escalating events. It's that should there be something like a no-fly zone with Americans involved and then something awful happens to an American, uh, where's, where's public opinion in America then uh, if, 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 it's, if it's all emotional, um, which, which a lot of it is, right? If it's not, if it's not a cons- even if whether or not they understand what a no-fly zone entails, um, this is, I think, much of the public is reacting to images on screens and sounds of of speeches and pleas uh, and less about uh, they're less considering sort of long term strategies about Putin and and the U.S.'s relative power and uh, what what we need to do going forward. So my fear is that the second something goes wrong and something always goes wrong by the way and when and something all when and when something goes wrong in war it's never small and and then where is public opinion what are we doing this is bad but there'll be arguments we prepared we didn't prepare correctly for it or no this was inevitable and then so i i it's, or it's there just wish engines i mean they flip What's side that? of that or there must or, be vengeance yeah. the flip Could side be. of that is yeah a but, disproportionate display of force in response to the the killing of an American. But let's let's zoom out a little from this notion that um, American public opinion is being driven by emotion. Uh, it is being driven by emotion, but what is the emotion? And this is a very important thing because on, on this question pivots the future of the American right. Is the emotion engaged because we're watching buildings being bombed and because the you know rules-based international order is under threat? Or is it because this is a war between unfreedom and freedom? Or is it a war between um, a country that uh, was our antagonist for almost 50 years um, as the unfreest country the world has ever seen as a totalitarian, vicious, monstrous state? That state... Uh, collapsed that empire collapsed and isn't and an effort is being made by a uh, an authoritarian who wants to be a totalitarian to reconstitute it and he is making his stand in this country that what the Americans have learned about it is that it's pretty free it's a pretty free country there's a lot of corruption and you know there's there there and uh, blah 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 it's very corrupt and so corrupt and so terrible, like like other democratic countries haven't been corrupt for much, particularly in the early going of their of their establishment as nations. Um, but that it's a free country, and they look around, they see apartment buildings that look like apartment buildings that they live in, and subway stations that look modern. And it's not, you know, it's not a, you know, it's not a desert satrapy. It is a Western free country that is being. Uh, is under is being the effort is being made to swallow it up into this sort of monstrous 
uh, growing, um, you know, neo-Stalinist or neo-Leninist state. Um, it's not about the emotion is an American emotion. The emotion is a powerful, strong connection to the idea that we are a free people and that we have a natural alliance and connection to other free people. And yeah, they look like us. They don't look different. I mean, they speak, they speak another language, but they look like us. The, the president of the country was a TV star. Uh, he was on silly sitcoms, you know, he, you know, he, he, uh, you know, he's he's a recognizable figure, semi-Trumpian in the sense that he rose from popular culture to become a leader. And um, what they are responding to and what, interestingly enough, the anti-war right or whatever you want to call it. I don't know what you want to call it exactly. The anti-anti-Putin right or the anti-anti-anti-Ukrainian right. I don't know how, how you want to. But it's very uncomfortable with the fact, bizarrely that there is a case to be made that the American people are responding as they respond to threats on freedom. That's the emotion. The emotion isn't, oh, this is terrible. Something terrible is going on. If that were the case, then yeah, every time on earth something bad happened, there would be a demand for us to imply, you know, to, to impose a no-fly zone. But when Venezuela was, you know, protesting its freedoms against its, you know, sitting, sitting communist monster, there was no call in America for us to go in and intervene in Venezuela. Well, there, I think a lot of this also can't be divorced from the the decades long uh, erasure of trust in the international institutions that the Biden administration is still appealing to as being useful. So, and this is actually another thing where the the right has long been critical. I think. At, exceptionally so and correctly so of institutions like the UN, the the EU getting together and finally figuring out how to work as a unit against this is good. This is we talked about this last week. It's a good thing to see the Europeans start to step up and, and do something, take action, at least, you know, uh, preliminarily. But this decline in faith in institutions means that, yes, the, I think you're right, John, that the American people might be out ahead of public opinion because they look around and say, well, who else can fix this? I mean, we might not want to be the world's policemen, but we cannot entrust the fate of a free people in Ukraine to the UN or to even to the EU quite yet. So we are the we are the country that has a singular power to be able to intervene and to and to do that. And yes, I think you're right that this has been a critique of the left, but we have we we see a country that looks a lot more like our own in in many ways, not because of the race of the people, but because it is a Western developed nation with cities and you know to see people who have to flee their apartments, which are then shelled and and cowering under broken up freeways, that could be us. That that could happen in any country if it can happen in Europe. So the decline of faith in these international institutions, I think, has also got to be factored in here, both for the left and the right. Okay, so I, it's not that we're the world's policemen, by the way. That's why I brought up Venezuela, or I brought up trouble in, you know, I don't know, the Coney. You remember Coney 2012? Right. I don't yeah. even, even remember what that was about. Or even Rwanda or Somalia, both, both, both of which places we did actually get involved to, to, to a much more limited degree than we get involved here. We are freedoms policemen. We are, that's a different thing. That is a national calling. And the idea that, you know, because we had reversals in Iraq and Afghanistan to some degree, those were, those had an interesting feature to them, Abe, that I would say is wildly different from this, which is, and that where where Bush's second inaugural, uh, George W. Bush's second inaugural, was a bridge too far, which is that we went into those countries. These were Afghanistan and Iraq were not free country. They were they were totalitarian or authoritarian satrapies. And we went into them not because we were defending freedom. Right. We went into Afghanistan to uh, attack uh, the people who, you know, attacked us and to and to roust out the government that had given them quarter. And then we went into Iraq because international terrorism that we believed was emanating from there was, and, and, and the sort of the, whatever you want to call it, the kind of uh, disorder created by Iraq uh, was a fertile feeding ground for, for the kind of uh, terrorism that uh, threatened us. When we went in and then we went in, then the question was, what do you do then? And then the idea was, well, you bring them freedom. We did this in Germany. We did it in 
Japan, we should do it here. And that maybe that was, and then that this is our mission. Our mission is not just to, you know, defend ourselves and to, and to roust out enemies, but an evangelical mission to expand the frontiers of freedom. And maybe that was a bridge too far. That is not what's going on here. This is a free country that is being eaten up in war by another country. This is a totally different set of circumstances. And it's offensive to me that, you know, people, this is where the condescension toward the American, you think they can't draw a distinction? You think they don't know the difference between Iraq and, 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 and Ukraine? I mean, granted, they don't know much about Ukraine. Although, you know, probably 20 million people know something about Ukraine in the United States, more than you think they do. And they're probably the leading edge of this, you know, activist opinion. But so we're, the, yeah, go ahead. The, Abe, I'm sorry. The term forever war, which I hate, which uh, both Biden and Trump have used, um, and which critics of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan use. Um, what they're really talking about, if, if to the extent that there's a forever dimension or an open-ended dimension, it is that it is exactly the project that you're talking about, John. It is it, what's what's what what seems to take forever, and what 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 maybe ultimately, uh, you know, we'll, we 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 can't do is this building of free in, of institutions to keep places free that didn't have it before. That's the forever dimension. This, what we're talking about now is not a forever dimension at all. Um, There's nothing we need to do for Ukraine. Right. Once Putin, it, Putin is extirpated from Ukraine. Ukraine, I mean, you know, maybe we'll, we'll lend them money to rebuild, you know, some of the buildings that got blown up or something like that. Although that, you know, that could be a new, you know, market or whatever. But we don't need to do anything for Ukraine. Ukraine pre-exists, right? A free Iraq didn't exist. A free There's Afghanistan also, certainly didn't exist. So something else that, that, that comes with this territory is that Americans were aware that, uh, Iraqis, people in Afghanistan, they weren't particularly well disposed toward America or Americans at the time. So there was this, really, we're going to go in and risk lives to help them when they, they, they probably couldn't care less about us. We know that's not the case in Ukraine as well. That's another emotional tug here. Um, and I think also part of the potency of public opinion right now has to do with the fact that I think a great many Americans were shocked that Putin actually went in. Uh, I keep reading. No one thought he was actually going to invade. No one thought. I keep saying, really? I, 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 I thought I never doubted it. But I think a lot of people really didn't think. And this has been like a revelation to them that, oh, oh, wow. Suddenly there are there are these massive evil forces in the world that are willing to do these things. And and that's, that's kind of their first brush with this. Well, great power competition is back, right? This is something that I think a lot of people had resigned to, you know, the previous century's history and we're better, we're more evolved now. We discuss these things at international meetings and agree on things together. It, it's always been uh, a fiction, always. I think it's even more important to point out that one of the reasons that great power struggles are back is that what Russia is doing and what Putin is doing is asserting that Russia is a great power. There have been real questions about Russia as a depopulating country. It has the 40th largest economy in the world or something like, or maybe the 27, but, but, but in terms of size, in terms of its general population, it has a really shockingly small and bruised economy. It's a gas station, you know, with a country attached to it, as people say. So if it didn't have oil, it would literally have no commerce, uh, practically speaking. And um, and and there's no reason other than this historical fact that it that that the predecessor regime made nuclear weapons for it to be a great power. It turns out that to be a great power, a lot of what you have to do is assert that you're a great power and act like you're a great power. You know, it's you're manifesting your great powerness. You're using the secret to turn yourself into a great power. Well, you know, I mean, in history, that that has happened. That happened time and again. Charles the Twelfth. Of Sweden, the Sweden was sitting there as a nothing, nothing burger country, and then and then this young man thought, well, I'll you know take over half of Europe. But it's not happening because here. It's not happening here. We are witness to a spectacular debacle of a sort that is unbecoming of a great power. The logistical failures, the the tactical right. confusing tactical decisions, and the failure of this uh, initial blitz 
to achieve most of its strategic objectives with the ex with rare exception um right now just to be get on a tactical level the russian advance is relatively inert as we've been saying before um ukraine has traded space for time they are retreating from big open areas allowing russia to exploit its, uh, its long supply lines and then hit them from behind uh making resupply extraordinarily extraordinarily difficult uh forcing russia to improvise tactically on the ground and increasing with every passing day that we introduce more and more anti-armor uh, weapons into this country, uh, increasing the, the capacity of Ukraine to resist to a point that outruns Russia's capacity to engage in conflict here. That's our strategic objective. We have a profound strategic objective in ensuring that Russia loses on its own terms and not giving them an option to say, this is a war against NATO, because that's all they want. They're desperate to have a war against uh, uh, America. They say, you know, listen to the Duma members who say, we don't have a border with Ukraine. We have a border with the United States. Ukraine is an American fiction. It wouldn't exist in the absence of uh, Western support. So given what they want would be a terrible failure. I understand the humanitarian pull to get involved here. That humanitarian pull was evident in Venezuela, it was evident in Myanmar, and we ignored that pull because it was strategically disadvantageous for us to, to follow the doctrine of right to protect without any strategic objectives at play. But Myanmar is an unfree country in which there was an internal revolt. And Venezuela is an unfree country in which the existing regime, you know, uh, fraudulently refused to allow itself to be supplanted in a free election by by the by the successor and the simple fact that, is that, that we have is, more strategic objectives at play in yemen in syria over the skies of libya than we do in south uh south america and southeast asia right. but that's where i get into the iran and Af iraq and afghanistan thing which is that we're not going to go those those are it's not exactly civil wars we're not going to go into myanmar and venezuela and involve ourselves in a struggle that, however noble and wonderful, involves the overthrow of an existing government or the or the or trashing or figuring out how to get an existing government out. We've done that in a couple of in a couple of places over the course of the last hundred years. I mean, not cooing, but like we succeeded in getting the Marcos regime out of the Philippines, for example. But it's a very hard pull. It's a very, very, very hard draw. And we it's not it's. The odds of success are in, insanely low, and it is the involving yourself in the internal affairs of another country. That is not what's going on here. This is an invasion of a sovereign country by a sovereign country that we have obligations to under the 1994 agreement by which we got them to give up nuclear weapons. We actually have, it's not exactly the NATO Article 5, but we have an obligate, we have an internationally expressed obligation to protect them from the Russians because we convinced them to give up their nuclear weapons. So that's not even something that most American people know about. But what we're talking about is just a different strategic situation. Like, not just is this Europe, so it's not South America or, you know, or, or, or Southeast Asia. It's Europe. And it, it's a country with an incredibly long border on a lot of other countries. But it's, you know, it is, it's being threatened from without. This is not a noble effort from within to make change that we support. You know, it is like if Canada were invaded or, you know, or it is like, you know, if it's just another country is being invaded by another country and it's an ally of ours and and uh, they're weaker, um, they're weaker on the ground or they're not weaker. on They're weaker in terms of materiel than the other country because the other country has nuclear weapons. All right, so let's let's explore the premise here. The premise is that the the humanitarian situation continues to degrade. Uh, Russian strategic objectives continue to be out of reach, so they use a lot of forward artillery and, and air assets to bomb these you know cities into submission. The outcry, the hue and cry in the West for something more muscular grows. Nobody can deliver on it because no one in the West is suicidal. I'm sorry, that's the case. Uh, so. What happens? The political argument becomes one that's just purely academic and the populist figures on the right begin to offer policy prescriptions that no one could ever meet or pursue uh, with any you know, satisfaction to the people actually demanding them. So what? The, the political situation continues to deteriorate around it, even as we're achieving our objectives from afar? Well, 
you're very sanguine about the nature of the Russian advance. I mean, that's the question if you think about this in the longer term. Like you're saying, you know, the Russians, uh, you know, have faced a debacle. Okay, so it's the early couple weeks of a war, and they went in with the wrong strategy. You can adjust. I mean, maybe he can. We've been maybe anticipating that adjust. That's right. We've been anticipating that adjustment for more than a week. Look, it has took, yet to materialize, it, and look, we have took, to entertain the pot, the prospects that it, that adjustment is materially unavailable to the Russian military. As I say, you are very sanguine about this. It took the it took the North two years to figure out that its strategy against the South in the Civil War was the wrong strategy. No, no, no. It, it could took, very well go on for months and months and months. But that's the scenario yeah. you're envisioning, which is pummeling civil uh, population centers into oblivion. Right. Okay. So we have we're on two different tracks here. You're saying that what I'm saying that public opinion is going to demand is something that will not happen because the West doesn't want to commit suicide. But I have two different things. And I again, I am not saying this prescriptively because I want it to happen. I'm I'm describing, you know, this sort of battlefield of public opinion, let's say, or where, you know, how how the forces are moving on the battlefield of public opinion. Um, you're saying that that the leaders can't allow this to happen because it's suicidal. And I'm saying, and again, maybe I was uh, my my time my my I thought it would happen already, but you know the the really bad stuff hasn't happened yet. And so, like by the middle of next week, if you think that the that the that the discussion in Ukraine is going to remain static, when you have public opinion, three quarters of Americans expressing interest in greater military involvement with to retard the Russian behavior in Ukraine, politicians respond to incentives. And you're saying that Biden can't allow this to happen. I'm sorry, that's just not true. I mean, when, when, when it becomes thinkable, it becomes thinkable. He has said from the beginning in a way that could have encouraged Putin to go in. What was all that crap Biden was saying in the weeks before? Look, if he can go in, I think he'll win. That was a good thing to say. He thought it was a good thing to say because he was somehow trying to mollify America or like talk Turkey, talk Tachlis to the to, to, to America. I don't even know what the hell that was, but it was like he was saying, no, no, no. You know what? You don't really have to take us seriously here. He is oh, being way, pushed. Oh, go, go ahead. I'm sorry. I, I, I think the same goes for Biden repeated, repeatedly saying that Americans aren't going to go or no American is going is going to go in to defend Ukraine only to defend uh, NATO territory. <clears throat> even if even if that is the correct policy, and I don't know if it is or if it isn't at this point. But uh, so even if you don't want any American soldiers to be involved in, in defending Ukraine, I still don't know what what in the world the benefit is of of telegraphing that constantly to to Russia. That's exactly the point. He thinks there is a benefit. He is trying to mollify pacifist Americans or you know Americans worried about military involvement with the idea that what we're doing isn't that you don't need to lose sleep over it. Like we're not getting ourselves into trouble. So don't worry. No American is going to die. You know, no American is going to get involved boots on the ground in Ukraine. What he shouldn't be saying. I got to say, I don't think he's satisfying. I really don't. I think okay. there's much more strategy here involved. I don't think he's satisfying public opinion at home. I think he's communicating in every possible way to the Kremlin that relax Keep your finger off the trigger here because they are very trigger happy. Doctrine allows Russia to use first use nuclear weapons to escalate, to deescalate, to shock people into submission. And they've ra- they've raised their alert status. We haven't seen any weapons moving around, but we're behaving as though we're we're scared of it because we haven't raised our DEFCON level. We shouldn't. We communicated to, to Moscow that we were the more responsible power by delaying this uh, very long term planned, communicated in advance launch of a Minuteman missile. That's something of a blink. In the face of in the face of uh, Russian brinksmanship, in a way that people who support a more muscular foreign policy said that's dumb. That only gives them more license because obviously we communicate this in advance. They know exactly what we're doing. This is not a sneak attack. But we are behaving as though Russia is in a very trigger happy mood here, and we should be. I think we're communicating okay. to Moscow to relax, not to the American public. I don't. You 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 could be right in part, but I don't. First of all, if that's true. 
then he's worse than I thought. Because Moscow should be scared of our involvement. The very fact that it wasn't scared of our involvement was one of the things that allowed him to think that he could go forward. Uh, you don't, you can't see what I'm seeing because we're on Zoom, but you know, Noah, Noah's got a very expressive face and his expression is slightly sickened. Scared but, Russia is bad. We don't want scared Russia. Uh, yeah, we want this Russia. That's good. This Russia's good. That's really great. You know, they're about to kill 100,000 people. Oh, we're being very know. cavalier these days about uh, the prospect of nuclear exchange. And we really shouldn't be. I'm not being cavalier about it at all. Like I said before, um, we are also a nuclear power. They need to be scared of us. By Biden saying around saying, don't be scared of us. Don't be scared of us. I'm sorry. You may think that that's a good thing. You know, I'm, I'm not using you. I mean, in general, you may, you know, I've never that been that accused of being the wuss in the effect. room, but I, I, I find myself you are to the be, wuss in the I room. I find myself to be the, uh, for having spent my career advocating fairly described as hawkish policies, find myself to I be know. the guy going, whoa, slow down here, everybody. It's but nobody, crazy. but, and I think, by the way, it's not that that's not a useful, you know, reminder that, you know, we need to look at this seriously and not, you know, go, you know, marching off to war without any sense of the consequences. That's not you're, where I'm. Okay. But can I argue that you're yes. both sort of right? Because I think what Noah's correct about, like, we really need to take seriously the idea that this is a, that there's a potential nuclear conflict that could, could uh, unravel in this, in this moment. And we know, look, we know Putin's thinking that way. He sent his mistress and all their uh, illegitimate children to some safe house in Switzerland and his first wife and the kids to some bunker in the, in, you know, Siberia, he's preparing as if that's a possibility for him. So we shouldn't uh, exclude that as a possibility on our own. However, I think that John is right that the messaging that the Biden administration has done on this has just been so confused that what you want is the sort of tough talk like we had from Reagan during the Cold War and others while the calm down diplomacy is happening behind the scenes. And right now you're getting mixed messages from the leader of the free world. Biden says one thing one day, another thing the other day. His UN representative, as you pointed out uh, last week, Noah, his representative of the UN and the embassy folks are saying something different. There's confusion and confusion uh, redounds to the benefit of Putin, not to the Americans. And also the American people don't really know what our strategy is here too. He needs to lay this out in the way that all leaders had to do during the Cold War, whether they had a D or an R after their name. We're relearning how to do that. And right now, I, I put a lot of blame on the Biden administration for how it's been handling its messaging of this, not just to Putin, but to us as Americans. Yeah. So I think the moves on the chessboard, as we can see them, you know, we just moved another thousand uh, people into Lithuania. We're moving missile batteries and various things onto the NATO border. I think the moves and the, the general approach um, has been much more agile and and uh, and thoughtful and uh, and you know and consistent with this you know uh, very success. This is a vindication of this very successful alliance that's been around for you know seventy five years. Um, a real vindication of it, and we should talk about that a little more uh, after the break, uh, which we should get to in a minute. Um, but in terms of why we're doing this or why why we're doing, you know, so if you want to make the case to the American people that we're doing this, ultimately, because we're defending the people that we have to defend under Article 5 and the rules-based international order and all of that, that is not going to be sufficient when they're watching a, a country being, you know, on the, uh, you know, in danger of being destroyed by another country a free country being destroyed by an unfree country, a friendly country being destroyed by an unfriendly country. They want more than hearing that boy in the councils of power, you know, a lot of good things are going on and we are, you know, we are drawing lines that are very important for the future and they are. So that's why I want to praise. I want to make sure to say that, you know, I, I'm not just going to say, oh, Biden doesn't know what he's doing and they don't know what they're doing. Clearly, they do know what they're doing to some degree. But they're, th this is where the question of what he is saying to the American people is so important. Noah, you're saying he's not talking. He's talking to Putin. He's not talking to the American people. I just don't think that's right. He thinks that the American people are, you know, uh, the left wing of the Democratic Party and need to be reassured that we're not going in. And he just keeps saying, we're not going in, we're not going in, we're not going in, we're not going in. And, and they assumed, and, and he, it turns out, yeah, go ahead, sorry. I was just saying, 
And he assumes everyone else who isn't the left wing of the Democratic Party only cares about gas prices going up. So he's reassuring them that right. that won't be. That's that's right. it. Now, I want to talk about NATO and interesting questions in relation to NATO. But before I do that, uh, if you like this conversation, you're interested in it. Go to Dan Senor's podcast. Call me back this week. You've heard me talk about it before. So this uh, this week he has on Representative Mike Gallagher, who is the who is the uh, uh, what do you call it? The, the ranking member of the uh, House Armed Services Committee or foreign. I can't one of the major military committees in the House. And of course, assuming that Republicans take over uh, in November, will be the chairman of that committee. Uh, Gallagher is a kind of warrior intellectual politician. He served uh, two tours in Iraq. He has a BA, two MAs, and a PhD in international relations and military theory. Um, he is the congressman for Green Bay uh, and its environs in, in Wisconsin. So he has a very interesting district, uh, uh, you know, sort of a, a classic kind of um, uh, Wisconsin nice, uh, you know, semi rural And, you know, and, and so uh, Dan asks him, what he thinks is going on. He provides a very, very interesting analysis, some of it which is about his constituents. And he says something that's very striking. He says in the course of the podcast that uh, what's going on here is not as Im impactful. It's not a word that I like, but I couldn't think of a better one on the spur of the moment uh, for uh, his district as the uh, bug out from Afghanistan, which he said was very rattling to people in his district. They didn't like seeing America, you know, undone this way. And they were very upset and very concerned and uh, very viscerally affected. And that's not what's going on here. But he says the whole point is that, you know, uh, America is an experiment and this is something that people in his district understand. And that, you know, this notion somehow that um, this notion somehow that uh, they don't care about uh, freedom or they don't care about anything, but, you know, their own backyards and all this is just belied not only by history, but by the way they're reacting to this. Um, it's a fantastic conversation. Uh, Gallagher is a sort of an amazing guy to listen to. Um, it's actually very heartening to think that somebody with his uh, seriousness of purpose and credentials and the way he thinks about this may actually become a major policymaker in the United States on these matters. So it's a way of getting it on the ground floor to understand where the Republican Party might be after November. Uh, that's the Call Me Back podcast with Dan Senor. Go to Apple, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever you get your fine podcasts, and you will really benefit and profit from that uh, conversation. Um, now, let's also talk a little bit about our friends at ExpressVPN. Look, you know, every time you connect to an unencrypted network in a cafe, in a hotel, in an airport, any hacker on that same network can gain access to your personal data, your passwords, your financial details. It doesn't take much technical knowledge to hack someone. Just some cheap hardware is needed. A smart 12-year-old could do it, and your data is valuable. Hackers can make up to 1000 bucks per person selling personal info on the dark web. That's why you need a VPN, and it's why you need ExpressVPN, okay, which creates a secure encrypted tunnel between your data, between your advice, and the internet. Hackers can't steal your sensitive data. It'd take a hacker with a supercomputer over a billion years to get past ExpressVPN's encryption. And it's easy to use. You just fire up the app, click one button to, one button to get protected. And it works on a phone, a laptop, tablet, and more so you can stay secure on the go. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash commentary. That's expressvpn.com slash commentary. And you can get an extra three months free expressvpn.com slash commentary. And let's also talk about our friends at Headspace. Because I want to ask you, how are you today? Really? Go on, have a think. Take a minute. If you're feeling hyper, or tired, or annoyed, or just mad, it's time to con get into contact with your feelings by starting your mental health journey with Headspace. You know, we all say fine. We don't mean it. Fine isn't really an emotion. How many times have you told yourself you're fine when all you really felt is anger or sadness or nerves? Headspace is scientifically proven to help you manage your feelings and your mental health. Once you download the Headspace app and try their mindfulness routines, it takes just a few minutes a day to change your relationship with stress and anxiety to start feeling better from waking up happier to getting your mind ready for bed. Make 2022 the year you incorporate mindfulness into your daily life and change your mental health for the better. That's Headspace. So however you're feeling, 
Try Headspace at headspace.com slash commentary and get one month free of their entire mindfulness library. This is the best Headspace offer available. So go to H-E-A-D-S-P-A-C-E.com slash commentary, headspace.com slash commentary. So John Bolton uh, uh, went on talk shows uh, this weekend and said something very interesting about Donald Trump and about the uh, general uh, and, and one of the reasons um, that uh, what's going on here uh, has a larger political meaning for the United States over the next decade uh, than, than, than maybe we are aware of. Uh, Bolton says that in his opinion, uh, Putin did not go into Ukraine in force during the Trump presidency because uh, he believed, as Bolton believed, that had Trump remained president in a second term, he would have pulled US, the U.S. out of NATO. And therefore, Putin would have gained his ultimate objective, which is the removal of Amer- the American sort of uh, security umbrella from Europe and the kind of the re- retrenchment of the United States back from, from this sort of forward connection to Europe and, and our, our idea that the defending Europe and the countries of Europe is tantamount to defending the continental United States and that, um, and that he was uh, inspired to uh, make this move because he was going to have to do it by force because uh, he was hoping that he would get it um, without. And obviously, if that's true, then this is yet another fundamental miscalculation by Putin, not just on the battlefield, but in an understanding of how the West functions and what America's like and all of that, that, that um, he wasn't, you know, that, uh, that, that uh, again, we were a paper tiger and that he should move because even Trump would have done it for free, but, you know, that this was the less costly option if what he wanted to do was pull this off. Anybody have any thoughts about this? It's a, I think it's a very interesting thing because, of course, <clears throat> you know, Bolton is, you don't get more right-wing than Bolton. You don't get more um, uh, suspicion of the international organizations that are so beloved of the Biden administration, as Christine was laying it out, than 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 Bolton. You don't get somebody who is our UN ambassador and has very skeptical views of the UN and all of that. But NATO is something else because it's not an international organization, right? It's a treaty. It's a it's a it's a it's an it's an it's an alliance of like minded and spiritually like minded nations. Uh, that are not only committed to this uh, rules-based international order, but also committed to a fundamental understanding that, you know, the individual is free and that government is not supposed to dominate um, individuals and their rights. Anyway, uh, so that's my question. What do you think of Bolton's theory? Abe, you got any? I think it's uh, it's very plausible. Um, you know, I mean, I think part of Putin's misunderstanding of the U.S., um, involves the idea that he, he probably thought that Trump could act politically and, and in policy terms somewhat like Putin acts within Russia and, you know, probably th- thought of him in terms of having some sort of absolute decision-making power here um, that, that he didn't have. Well, he very well could have. Um, it would be interesting to test the proposition that this ratified treaty <clears throat> isn't worth the paper it's printed on because you can just withdraw from it. I mean, maybe that's what George W. Bush did in 2002, withdrawing from uh, or stating the, the, his intention to withdraw from the anti-ballistic missile treaty um, to the sound of some protests from Congress, but nothing much more than that. Uh, so it's quite possible that you could test that proposition see what Congress has to say about the matter. The problem is that Congress does that get a vote in that situation, quite literally. Uh, so uh, the idea here that it was just, it would just be the functional equivalent of a presidential finger snap, I think is, is inaccurate. I mean, I don't know whether it's accurate or it's, it's accurate or inaccurate. It's just an interesting question that goes to the mindset. And I think it goes then to the mindset I say about politics over the next decade, which is, uh, I note, and again, um, I don't want to overestimate or overread the importance of the so-called trad cons or this kind of American greatness right or however you want to slice it, but um, their extreme discomfort with the American involvement uh, in, in, in this uh, 
uh, in this situation in Ukraine, which is uh, which is growing by the day. Uh, there's a lot of to be sure Putin's bad and he shouldn't have done this. But then there is a lot of talk and it starts stretching in the way that uh, Twitter will end up stretching these things into kind of the most vulgar possible presentation of what may be a more complicated idea because you only have 280 characters um, into this notion of like, uh, really? I mean, uh, Josh Hammer of Newsweek, who was one of the TradCon sort of intellectuals, um, put up a picture of, a, of an office building in Miami that had the word, you know, whose owner had had put sort of like created a light display down the side of it that said freedom. And he was like, you see, this is a cult. How can you not look at this and say this is a cult freedom in Miami? Really? A city, you know, the Cuban, you know, the major, practically majority Cuban city. Um, and they're supporting uh, they're supporting for, you know, a, a free country against against Russia. And that's something that suggests cultishness. It's or- only it's only funny because <laughs> they're so obsessed with culture and being able to recognize it and promote it. And when they see culture, they see a cult because they want a different culture. They don't like the culture as it's presently constituted. But, but it's like I, the I, left that hated people waving American flags after 9-11. Same, right. same impulse, same impulse. Right. So I think we need to think about what this means. And the question, if what they are doing is reading the, the Trump, the, if they're representatives of the Trump room and we need to read the Trump room, they are crosswise of American public opinion and particularly Republican public opinion, way crosswise of it. Uh, the number, the things that are driving those numbers, those 80, 85 percent numbers toward more military action is Republican support, which is almost uniform for tougher action. Now, that was not inherently predictable based on Trump's own way of thinking about a lot of these things, which is, yeah, he was sort of Jacksonian tough. Right. I mean, he was the one who said we will rain fire and fury on North Korea, the likes of which we'll never see and scared everybody to death. And, you know, liberals are sleeping in bomb shelters because they were worried that, you know, that Trump was about to, you know, start a nuclear war, all of that. But of course, you know, he doesn't like internationally, he doesn't like NATO. He never liked NATO. He doesn't like these things. And, uh, and though he says this would never have happened on my watch, Trump, which I think is a defensible argument, um, whether but whether you think it's because of Bolton's idea or or not, um, nonetheless, the people who are his like intellectual brain trust are very bizarrely hostile to supporting the Ukrainian people and very bizarrely defensive of the Russian people. Now, I don't th- you know Roger Kimball of the New Criterion has a piece of American greatness in which he points out, as a lot of people have. There's a kind of a silliness going on where people are, you know, don't want Russians. You know, they they won't go to the Russian tea room and they don't, you know, they don't want to eat. You know, they won't, don't want Russian dressing. And he's got a cat who's like a Russian something or other. And he's worried about his cat because people are going to not like the cat. It's like freedom fries or something like that. And of course, that stuff is very silly. And you have to separate Russian people from Putin, who's an authoritarian and all of that. But Really, like this is the moment at which you want to complain that the American people are bizarrely Russophobic. We're too Russophobic, really. I mean, what about you know what? What did the Russian people ever do? It's so terrible that Netflix isn't going to let people watch TV, and that's really helpful to do that to the poor Russian people who just want to watch Netflix. I mean, I've never heard such. You know, they they're so concerned with the good working order of the Russian people and not with the people who are being bombed. Okay, you've you've firmly now placed me within the camp of with. Roger Kimball, which is, again, extremely disoriented. I agree. I agree with that. But I agreed with that during the Cold War. Like, you know, some of the most there's a tactical reason why this isn't just about, you know, proper moral hygiene. There is a tactical you reason didn't why read Roger's wanna... piece. You wouldn't agree with it if you'd read I'm sure I wouldn't. I'm sure yeah. I wouldn't. Okay. <clears throat> but I don't disagree with the sentiment that we need to tamp down this kind of bizarrely russophobic response reaction to it, because in the imminently foreseeable event in which we get a spillover, if Russia does manage to go all the way to the NATO border, finds itself in uh, executing combat operations along the borders with Romania, Poland, and Hungary, then yeah, you can foresee a spillover event that implicates that involves a NATO asset, possibly involves bloodshed. And yeah, what are, what are the, what is the public, if we're beating war drums constantly, what is the public response going to be? Yeah, we should be concerned about that. Oh, come on, really? 
Oh, well, yes. I, I don't. I don't. Absolutely. I'm, I'm not. I mean, were you against? I mean, so there was the whole thing with freedom fries. Big deal. Yeah, like, I have yeah, absolutely no that. problem with that because France is an ally and not a deeply paranoid power that is armed to the teeth with strategic nuclear weapons armed at our heads. So we but can't. Is, so we can't be hostile to Russia because Putin is paranoid. We are being hostile. We've been hostile. No, we I'm be just more saying hostile. This is, we shouldn't all- we shouldn't stumble our way into the into a cascading series of responses that don't have a have a real way to stop. We can't stop that cascade when it starts. But, but I don't- culturally, we're all I mean, I'm sorry, I'm team Wolverine here like and, and old people will get that reference, I hope. But that, that uh, I'll let you speak in one second. But I just think, look, that, to the point about Trump and his acolytes right now, strategically, he has not so far said anything even remotely uh, alternative to what Biden is doing that would make sense. So what did he say over the weekend? Well, we should take some F-22s, put a Chinese flag on them and go bomb the Russians and they'll think it's China. Ha ha ha. I mean, this is not a serious person thinking in a serious way. So I think a lot of his acolytes and the sort of NACONs are trying to find trying to make an intellectual argument that they will then and ex post facto say was Trump's plan all along. They've done that before. They'll do it in this case. But for crying out loud, in the, in the same way that I think this conflict has exposed the, the pettiness of a lot of our domestic concerns like wokeness and whatnot, it's also displaying the absolute strategic idiocy on, on some of these matters that Trump has always, always had. Rant I, over. I, yeah. <laughs> I, my concern with all this talk about Russophobia and and um, needlessly escalating things is it, it's further, you know, instilling this idea that it's Putin's world and we're just living in it. He's setting the rules and we better watch out for him. And uh, look how that's going so far. You know, that is that's that's the problem. It's 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 not as if Biden's telegraphing. Uh, not to fear the U.S. has worked at, 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 in any conceivable way here at all. It was it, it was clearly a misreading of Putin uh, on Biden's part. I just, and I just want to say about the, the NatCons here generally, this has exposed their uh, ideological and in- intellectual contradictions to an extraordinary degree. I mean, they're now out here saying, uh, we're going to, this is crazy. You know, we, we're just war hungry. And the, I thought their concern about the Department of Defense before this was that they were a bunch of wusses who only cared about, you know, uh, uh, gender ideology. Now, now they're, now they're too bloodthirsty. You know, uh, they, they, these were the guys who, as I said this on Twitter last night, they, they, they viewed uh, Justin Trudeau's overreach as tyranny and uh, meanwhile, Putin's tyranny is just uh, overreach. You know, I mean, that, that's a that's a they, I think that's a they, fantastic they, point. And they, they I mean, there's so many there's more. They're like, right. China, China. This is all distraction from China. This is part and parcel of China. I mean, so China is terrible. I totally agree. China's great ally is but China's great ally is OK by them. I mean, this is so. But so when they have these many contradictions just flowing through everything they're doing, it turns out what's actually animating them is what we've always said is anti-Americanism. That's 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 the only right. through point here. Everything else they can they can weigh in on either side of the fence, depending on what's happening. The point is that whatever the U.S. is doing is bad. I would also like to point out that during the Cold for the balance of the Cold War, the most resolute, the most powerful, the most potent voices in uh, sort of like uh, Cold War anti-communism were Russophilic, not Russophobic. We're talking about people who were deep students of Russian literature, Russian history. They were, and the, uh, the idea was you have to separate the Russian people from its government, which was oppressing it the same way that they were imprisoned by their government the way that their government wanted to imprison others. And that they were, in fact, inheritors of a great culture, a a wondrous body of literature and art, and that they were being strangled, right? Now, you can't make that case after 30 years after the Soviet Union is gone if you actually believe the kind of things that we hear, which is that Putin is very popular in Russia. And maybe he's popular in Russia because he's so amazingly good at manipulating the press, although, you know, totalitarian country... Uh, is pretty good at manipulating the press because there is no other press um, and all of that. But I mean, the the point is the Russian people 
don't bear no response, don't bear, unlike the Cold War, the Russian people bear some, op, bear some responsibility for the behavior of its leadership. Um, and they're suffering the consequences. A, and they're going to suffer consequences. The, yes, they and are. I don't think we should underestimate the extent to which we've changed the rules of engagement here in a way that has put Russia in check. They're behaving as though they are. For 40 years, off and on, the predictable, albeit perhaps unstabilizing, relationship between the United States and Russia was proxy conflict. It was proxy conflict in Afghanistan. It was proxy conflict in Syria, half a dozen other places and all over the, over the world, mostly diplomatic and economic, but sometimes military. Here's something very different. We are outright declared supporters, material supporters of a combatant power where Russia's trying, Russia's trying to subjugate it. This isn't deniable. This isn't proxy conflict. It is direct in a way that is, think, has, sh has shaken Moscow's leadership because they're not responding to it as they would in Syria. If this was a very confident power that had no that wasn't held in check to some degree by our nuclear deterrent, they would be violently interdicting on the western border these shipments of these weapons that are killing them, that are just strangling them and preventing them from achieving their strategic objectives. They're scared too, to a right. degree that I don't think we should underestimate. I, I I agree, and I think we should make them more scared, and they should be more scared, and we should be less worried about scaring them. Um, and I just think, again, just to return to the theme of the beginning, uh, Noah's prescription is that the this uh, rush of American opinion uh, is um, is potentially dangerous because it's it's heedless of the consequences. And I think that it's something that um, Biden and his people should be taking into account as they figure out what their next steps are, because um, they're going to get pushed. And this is partially also in relation to Trump and the Trumpian right and all of that, which is that um, Trump is still the most popular person in the Republican Party. He was still the odds on favorite to be the nominee in 2024 if he runs and all of that. But Republicans in the House and in the Senate are going to be much more hawkish about this than he would want them to be or to the extent that he cares what, what they think, because I think he mostly cares about how they react to questions about whether or not the election was stolen. But um, they are they they have to respond to politics in the present moment and not just think about him. And they are they are going to move the Republican Party back to a certain type of hawkishness that he was attempting to transcend a little bit. You know, his idea was. I'm great. I'll go into Syria, but for a night, you know, I'll go in and I'll take out Soleimani, but that's one operation. And then I, that where we go in, we go out. It's like, it's like going to Wisconsin, like they say in stripes, you know, we're in, we're out. Um, and that's not what it would appear. The American people and the Republican party are going to actually, how they're going to respond to what's going on here. Um, again, it's very early. It's still very early in historical terms. It's only been like two and a half weeks or something like that, you know, and things can turn on a dime. And, you know, I mean, it's horrible to say, but the Russians could, you know, kill Zelensky tomorrow and knock the, you know, some knock the stuffings out of the resistance or whatever. But um, assuming that that doesn't happen, uh, you know, we are, we're in for a long struggle and, this is what's going to focus the attention of American politi political minds and not what happened in a voting machine in Eau Claire, Wisconsin, which is what Trump wants people to focus on. And he therefore, you know, the fact that the other week when said, do you have a message, you know, when someone asked him, do you have a message to send to Putin? He didn't have the wherewithal to say, get out of Ukraine. Right now, all he all he'd have to say is, yeah, I got a message from get out of Ukraine. He didn't have to say, we'll bomb you. Will this will he said, I don't have a message. Well, why didn't he have a message? The message is get out of Ukraine. Ninety nine percent of the American people would support that message. No one's saying, what's your strategy for getting him out? You just say, get out. Here's my message. Vladimir, get out of Ukraine. You know, I love you. Get out of Ukraine. Couldn't do that. And uh, that speaks to maybe, um, a, you know, that he's missing a step or two or five or 10 because his solipsism is so extreme that the only thing that's on the, you know, in the forefront of his mind is 
Biden is bad. And, you know, I, I, the, the election was stolen for me. Uh, tomorrow we will have on Jonathan Shanzer to talk about the, uh, the uh, looming uh, restoration or reimposition of the Iran deal, uh, which is itself a strategic horror and also uh, tactical and strategic horror and also something that's almost unimaginable to believe we're actually seriously contemplating if the Russians are the guarantor of the deal while we are you know, increasingly in at least a cold war with uh, the a hot war with the Russians. Um, very strange. And, uh, and we'll try to uh, delve into that. And remember, April 6th, Palm Beach, live commentary podcast, commentary.org slash live podcast for more details. And we'll be back with you tomorrow for Abe, Christina, Noam, John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning.